From the boardroom to the shop floor, good business runs on good governance. Join esteemed expert in governance, Dr. Nimrod Dembele, for the next hour as he takes us beyond governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Dembele on 101.9 High FM. Good evening and welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in on this glorious Tuesday. Uh, believe it or not, we have entered, what, 23rd or 24th day of the lockdown? My word, I mean, it, it's just amazing. Uh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure about how some of you guys. For me, it's just been crazy. I mean, I almost lost my marbles, uh, for I'm not used to this kind of environment. I suppose it is a new normal. Um, enough about me, but how are you guys coping? I must say, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of social media, but over the past uh, weeks or so, I really grew to appreciate the value of social media in terms of keeping us, uh, you know, uh, involved uh, 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 or in a know-how in terms of what is actually happening around. Uh, let's just say, I mean, you know, television is so boring because we, it's same old, same old, and it's all this depressing stuff that we read. But I found I found a bit of solace uh, when I look at the social media. Uh, on a positive note, we know that the president will be addressing us uh, tonight. We might breathe a sign of relief uh, as the leech around our neck uh, is likely to be uh, loosened. Well, perhaps maybe I'm just being optimistic, but uh, we do need uh, an element of optimism, you know, uh, throughout the country, as it were. But, you know, personally, it's important for me just to reflect how things have unraveled over the past three weeks. I mean, you would, you probably recall that uh, just a few months ago, we were all having raging debate over whether the state should resort to austerity focus, much along the lines of European experiments uh, to put the lid on, on rising debt or find whatever little space is available to stimulate what has been deteriorating, you know, deteriorating over the past decade. Uh, that line of argument, in my view, found resonance uh, amongst, you know, top politicians. I mean, a key among that is the proponents of new liberal thoughts, uh, being, you know, the minister of finance and host of private, you know, sector captains. On this particular show, I recall having conversation with a number of captains of industry. And the views were overwhelmingly similar in that they too, you know, spoke about public debt, spoke about restructuring of SOEs such as ASCOM and SAA, and providing policy, policy certainty on issues such as spectrum, land, and also E. So all these issues, uh, which, which have been, you know, uh, debated, uh, throughout, you know, the past couple of months or so, have suddenly, you know, taken a, a turn, you know, because of COVID-19. Everything has basically changed. But, you know, obviously I'm trying to set the, the, the context of the scene of our conversation, particularly when we, we've gathered through the World Health, uh, Health Organization that the worst is yet to come. Uh, if the worst is yet to come, why most com- com- countries are contemplating to loosen up the... The, the lockdown measures. Um, South Africa, for an example, is one of those countries that is likely to consider uh, loosening up, uh, you know, uh, lockdown measures. 
you know. But the irony is that, you know, um, well, I suppose it begs the question of, you know, the kind of intelligences that we have gathered. But that's my food for thought. Uh, do weigh in our conversation tonight. Our SMS line is 34519. Our telegram is 61 895 My email is nimrot at and I believe um, as we broke out in, you know, off-site, uh, my colleagues on the studio who are men in this fort, I must really say uh, you guys have really uh, make a world of difference. On the world of difference, I also need to, you know, zoom in on our, you know, uh, uh, our heroes. I think it's important that we pay homage to our policemen and women, our army, uh, the health workers who are holding the fort, uh, you know, risking their own lives, uh, you know, in a cab, in, in an attempt to cap the, the coronavirus. I mean, it's very important that we all, you know, do our, our, our bit in as far as trying to, you know, uh, observe the, those kinds of protocols that we got from, from, from the president. Uh, on our menu tonight, as we proceed swiftly, uh, we're going to have a conversation with, uh, Paulo Caldera, um, you know, who is the, 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 the MD, uh, of, 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 um, you know, Edgevort to give us a, a sense of what is prevailing, uh, in the economy, um, you know, given the sense that COVID-19 has literally changed the, the landscape in terms of ITC's concerned. Uh, particularly in the in, in the education space, so Paolo will give us a sense uh, of that. Our second, you know, part of the conversation as we proceed, we look at uh, you know mitigating strategies that are you know being 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 punted uh, post lockdown on period because we know that we, we always have to be constructive in our uh, in our thought process. We have to plan ahead. Yes, you know, COVID-19 is now past. We knew, obviously need to say how do we take the, the, the economy forward. Uh, like I said earlier, we are joined online by Paul Caldera, who is the managing director at educational technology company called Age of Art South Africa, based in Durban. Paolo is an engineer by training uh, and has worked in, in corporate ITC space. Let me take this opportunity to welcome Paolo. Uh, Paolo, good, good evening and welcome to the show. Good evening, Dr. Mm-hmm. Mbele. Thank, thank you and good evening to your listeners. Thank you very much. Uh, we also be joined online by, uh, our, uh, you know, Justice Ndaba, who's executive at the uh, Northern Checkers Group. Uh, Ndaba, good evening and welcome. Sure, Doc. How are you doing? And, uh, I'm great, good man. To your Thank, mm-hmm. thank you very much. We also joined by Unatim Tuninzi, uh, you know, uh, ethic, um, ethics specialist. Um, who's on the line as well. Uh, Unati, good evening and welcome as well. Good evening, Doctor, and good evening, good evening to Mr. Ndaba and to Paolo. And you listen. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, folks. Um, how beautiful the line is today, my goodness. Uh, two weeks ago, Paolo, I was tearing my, 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 my I was spitting my, the bit that is left in my hair. Uh, but, you know, God is great. Look at the, you know, the, the beauty of the line today. But anyway. Moving forward, Paolo. Yes, I suppose sir. the million dollar question um, is the state of the state of readiness uh, for government, teachers, parents, and learners who are used to face to face kind of engagement. We know for the fact that you know uh, over the past month or so and beyond, uh, online uh, has become a norm or a new norm. 
but but you know from a change management point of view how how ready what is the state of readiness are we seeing more and more people receptive to online kind of services from where you're sitting yes uh doc absolutely i think um it's become the new norm but at the same time it has it's had a lot of challenges in the sense that these systems had not been tested tried they they hadn't been trialed enough um, there's also the challenge of some educators not being tech savvy. A lot of our kids are very tech savvy, as you know. Uh, despite being an engineer, I go to my daughter to solve problems with my phone because she's a clever one. So, but, but fundamentally what hap- what's happened is that the use of e-learning technology, specifically online e-learning technology, has essentially been forced on us. And that's also created another divide because some people have internet at home or have access to data. Data costs money, and some people do not. So we're in a bit of a quandary right now. And my personal opinion is we should have been readier. We should have moved on this. Um, we should have been a lot further down the road in terms of enabling the e-learning revolution, which is part of the fourth industrial revolution, essentially. We should have been a lot further down the line than we are now. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think what, what you hit it on a nail that we should obviously be, you know, should have uh, been more ready. But I suppose circumstances such as these forces us to be ready. But here's a question that you uh, issue that you raise. It's, uh, it's about equity. Um, don't you think um, the online provisioning would hamper, uh, you know, uh, that you know, or, or would would you know, place a wedge on equity because we know that majority of people don't have access to you know to resources, data being one of them. So for them to access, uh, you know, data online, uh, it, I mean, content, education content online, it's it's quite problematic. How do we navigate that? Uh, well, here's the thing, Doc. These solutions are available. So. I don't want to sit here and, and promote my company, but but one thing we've been working on for the last four years, um, first under the Altec brand, now under the Power Mutler brand, we're part of a bigger group called Power Mutler, is that offline for South Africa and Africa is the way to go right now because now you are addressing every little town, village, and dorpy everywhere in the country if you can take a lot of this e-learning offline and effectively – it's not rocket science. You know, it's, it's, it's been done. We've got it. Um, it's just getting, I think, government to listen to, to solutions that are practical. Everybody's talking fourth industrial revolution. Everybody wants to do coding, robotics, and uh, uh, artificial intelligence. Nobody's looking at the basics. And really, where we find ourselves right now, those basics should have been in place a long time ago. And I'll give you an example. Um, if you are able to provision a rural school or even a, a, a urban school, but if you're able to provision them with a cost-effective um, computer that can deliver e-learning content, lessons, help material, notes, school books over a wireless network in the school, which is what we're doing, then you've solved the problem in the sense that every learner, well, not every learner, a lot of learners have got devices, don't need to be the latest, most expensive devices. A five, six-year-old device, phone, tablet is good enough. A lot of schools in this country have got a computer lab that's been generously sponsored by the Vodacoms, the MTNs, the Telcoms, uh, even Armscore of this world. 
So if you have computers in the school and or if your learners have access to devices, you can essentially localize the cloud into a school so you don't need this big fat internet pipe to do e-learning, which is where the challenge really lies in my opinion. But, but, you know, interestingly, do you think, um, because I've picked up elsewhere that um, some of the content or some of these large um, ICT companies are happy to zero rate the content. Um, how, have you been exposed to or know of um, zero rating of content by some of these um, ICT companies? Absolutely. And, and, and uh, the, the, the mobile operators, the MTNs and telecoms and Vodacoms of the world have come to the party and they're doing a fantastic job. What they're doing largely, and even schools are doing it to a large extent, specifically quintile four and five in private schools, is streaming live lessons to learners in their home. That's assuming those learners have Internet access. Now, if you happen to be a quintile four or five or a private school, there's a good chance you might have internet access in your home. The challenge still lies in the quality of that internet access. As you said earlier, Doc, two weeks ago we tried to do this, this broadcast and we had problems with the internet. Okay. Um, my daughter, who's in, in, in the trick, this two weeks ago, a week ago, she missed out on two lessons because firstly she had technical problems with, they were using Zoom, I think it was. She had technical problems with Zoom and couldn't figure it out in time to get to the lesson. The second time, my internet, which is a 40 megabit per second pipe, which is supposed to be very, very good, went haywire. So if you are dependent on technology for time-critical tasks, like this, broadcast, this radio broadcast, or like a teacher live-streaming lesson, or like Vodacom eSchool live-streaming lessons, you are always going to have the possibility of challenges in, in the internet going down. They're also doing radio and TV broadcasts. And the challenge with that as well, it's, it's fantastic. I'm not, I'm not dissing any of this. They're doing a great job. But the challenge is always that some learners will pick it up first time. Some learners require you to repeat it twice. Some learners three times. And while a teacher is streaming live to a class of 40 learners sitting at home, or while a teacher is in front of a, in a TV studio in front of a camera live streaming a lesson on maths, the interaction is not the same as sitting in a classroom, putting up, putting up your hand and saying, ma'am, half of us don't understand. Please do that again. You know. So there's always that challenge. And that's where, in my opinion, live streaming has its place. Having content libraries with good quality e-learning content as a backup to those live streaming lessons is very important. No, thanks for that, uh, Paula. But what, maybe there's a follow-up question around, um, you know, because we know that uh, government is doing quite well in terms of providing uh, e-learning content via radio and television and so on and so forth. And, and we seems to be getting uptake on the side of communities. But, but my worry is, um, often when you are providing these kind of services, you also need to have a sense of how they've been utilized. My view or my, my assessment as it were is that most of these interventions are almost like you're front loading. How do we know you can have as many TV broadcasts you, you like, you can have as many uh, radio shows you like, you can have as many of these things as you like, but how do we know if they're really making a difference? How do we know if people, if the teachers, firstly, are using these things and I, they, 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 they provide some kind of feedback? How do we know the learners? 
How many learners are using these things? Because it's well and good to say we are providing these things for, you know, for learners, students, and, 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 and school community broadly. But from where you're sitting, I, what would be different? Because at some point, you, one would need to have kind of a, you know, um, Informatic kind of uh, response to to make a determination on whether this platform is working or this platform is not working. How do you mitigate, how do you mitigate that kind of uh, exposure? Well, Nimrod, you know the old adage: you can't manage what you can't measure. So a lot of these systems now. So TV broadcast is TV broadcast. You don't know if the kid is sitting in front of the TV watching exactly my point. the lesson or not. So the parent has some responsibility, and I think um, parents need to understand that. In, in these times, and I'd call them times of crisis, they have to have the responsibility of pushing the kids because kids will be kids. Some kids will take it seriously. My daughter's in matric. She takes it very seriously and spends half a day in her room studying, which is great for me. <laughs> but some kids will, will just not care. So parents have to step in. On the other hand, parents can only do so much. From a technology perspective, there are systems where you can have assessments, you can measure and manage the performance of those kids. Um, typically, again, I go back, I love my offline. Online, the internet is great till it fails. So online systems typically would have a lesson that have an interactive uh, a portal whereby the, straight after the lesson, the learners could go and answer some questions and the educator would tell straight away that they got it or they didn't get it. So these online systems allow you to set quizzes and surveys and tests, and they can auto-mark themselves, which is fantastic. So if the teacher decides she's got a 45-minute lesson or 50-minute lesson, and the first 30 or 35 minutes they will teach, they'll then do an assessment. Those learners, say they give them 10 questions on the 35 minutes worth of teaching. Those learners will each get five minutes to answer the questions, okay? That teacher then, through technology, is able to immediately see on her screen or his screen who got it right, who got it wrong. And importantly, you'll see a trend. If all the learners happen to have got question eight wrong, you know, okay, I've got to repeat that little section on question eight. They didn't, nobody got it, or very few of them got it. You know, so technology can help. Now, why I keep harping on about offline is those kind of interventions become very difficult in an offline scenario, which 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 um, doesn't rely on a connection to the internet. It relies on a server sitting in a school in rural in a rural setting, okay, with very little access to the internet or no access to the internet. Now, how do you manage that? And that's where some of the systems that we are punting have got the ability to do analytics on the usage. So per learner, you can determine for the 1,500 learners in the school, who has got, gone and looked at what content, who's gone and looked at, at what resources, and measure their performance against their use of the technology. Then the headmaster and the teachers can jump in and say, okay, uh, Mr. Ndaba, you have done really well, and we notice coincidentally, that you've done a lot of work and you've used a lot of the systems and technology that we've provided to get those results. But, Mr. Mbele, your results are terrible, but you haven't been using the system. So we've provided all these resources at great cost, sometimes lesser cost, to you. You're not using them, and now you just complain that the world's against you. So fundamentally, where I'm going with this is technology that we have today, 
not necessarily only our own, but certainly technology that I have access to and I've seen other people doing and I've partnered with other companies, we can solve this problem. We can solve the problem by scaling education. It's not only on the teacher now. The teachers are doing their job. Some of them are working Saturdays, Sundays to try and get our matrix through. Let technology help them because it can today, not in five years or ten years' time. No, thanks for, for that um, insight, Paolo. I just want to bring justice and, and possibly Unati from a change management point of view because these technologies um, on their own, those they can't, they can't drive transformation. Uh, transformation has to be in, in, in a context of, um, you know, e-learning. So, um, you know, so there has to be a particular ethos that is being, you know, uh, you know, driven at the school level so that uh, even at community level so that people know and understand the value of, of these kind of technologies. What, what sort of change approaches would you propagate justice in as far as making, you know, the, the, the school community aware of the value of the e-learning platforms and, and, and how they could uh, be, you know, how, how they could leverage on such platform for the betterment. Let me make an example. We do know that teachers, most of the teachers, as Paul has correctly pointed out, they are not uh, tech-savvy. So I would imagine this kind of um, provision could be intimidating. And if they're intimidating, there's going to be a lesser appetite for, for them to be used. And if that uh, assumption is correct, which means there has to be some proactive measures taken to to, to try and, and change the, the, the thinking, the mentality uh, of the teachers, parents, and learners. How would you go about doing that? Because that seems to be, at least in my mind, the, one of the biggest challenges. Well, uh, Doc, if I may come in here, the um, change by its own nature and character is a difficult thing. And, and, and the education space, unfortunately or fortunately, it has quite a lot of stakeholders in it. Um, and, and naturally, um, the technology, as technology, you would know in South Africa that some of the resistance that we've seen in different uh, industries um, against technology has been from because of fear uh, of, of the impact on technology, for instance, on jobs. So you would find that in, 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 in this instance, for instance, if um, one has to come up with a, a program such as this one to implement, you would have to underpin it with a program of change management in the schools and the school's environment and the school communities, which will then have to impact on all stakeholders because you would have had to engage then the stakeholders and run programs of of what is it that is being changed, um, how they can play a role or a part in it, and then address fears uh, that they may have, either as either unions or as individual teachers. Because, I mean, in many instances, for instance, let me give you an example, uh, where you have... Um, in the old terrestrial, in the old um, system, um, a manual scheduler uh, who happens to be a teacher, a scheduler would be someone who schedules um, P 
periods and um, students and subjects and everything else. Now, with technology, it would suggest that um, that scheduler now would no longer be needed. Now, that scheduler could be a very influential person in the sense that you would know yourself that teachers always want to be friends with the scheduler because they then that determines where their periods would be in the in the day's calendar or a week's calendar. Now, you take away the role of a scheduler or um, perception is that technology is going to take away that role, then naturally you would have resistance from schedulers who said, no, now there won't be a need for me. So um, my answer would be that you underpin a, a program such as this one that Paolo talks about with um, the actual change management program that you will run with the schools that would address uh, the stakeholders' interests, stakeholders' fears, stakeholders' um, uh, 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 resistance, for instance, because you are then able to mitigate any potential. And then once you've got buy-in, it will be easier to implement. No, no, thanks for that head, um, head, um, head up, Justice. Uh, I think you were quite spot on by acknowledging the fact that, you know, typically education or any intervention for that matter, uh, it takes time for people to understand and even to appreciate it. So which means the era which you are at, uh, we obviously have to take people, you know, throughout the journey in, yeah. in, in, in bits and pieces so that they, they own or a person will see the value of of, um, of technology. I mean, you know, uh, through e-learning. Yeah. Perhaps maybe Unaki might just want to add something there. Yes, thank you so much. You know, um, I think in any country, um, education is really a contested space, fiercely, fiercely contested space, for many reasons. Because it's it's it, it plays the biggest role in determining the type of or the quality of the citizens that you're going to produce. So I agree that, unfortunately, in South Africa, we, we have trust issues. And you find that sometimes these things are even underpinned by racial issues. So it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to deal with, and I agree that it's, it's, it's important to have that kind of a, a change management um, um, issue. So, so... It, that would be a, also my view as a personal view is technology should only be a catalyst to something. It, it shouldn't really be something that seeks to take away um, relationships between human beings because at the end of the day, as human beings, the one thing that we should treasure the most is the relationships between each other. So sometimes I think education or sorry, technology sort of intrudes into that space where it becomes less easier to relate. I mean, I, do, I know people say they like social media, and you also like social media. But, I mean, what are the unintended consequences for genuine, authentic relationships between people? So I think it's the same thing. I mean, some of us, I mean, if I look into my own personal life, one of the best things I've treasured the most is personal relationships I've been able to have with the people that have lectured me for many years. And those relationships have preserved them for many years. Some of the people, I can still call them today when the last time he taught me or she taught me something was 30 years ago. So 
I think that's that that there's a trust issue. Um, I, I I agree on the fear issue, but also it's a trust issue, and that's a challenge in this country that that we need to to deal with. I would even say that it's it's important to to heal as a country. You know, we are so wounded that even the things that I suppose are there for our in our best interest, we we treat them with suspicion. So I I think we, it's something we need to deal with. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much. I think what I'm picking up from, from your last point is a trust deficit. Uh, let's now use the, the issue of trust deficit in a context of, um, you know, online or e-line kinds of services that Paul is talking about. So, so for, for us to have trust in these kinds of, of platforms, firstly, let's assume I am a company that has, in, that is investing in education. What's value for me? Because over and above just, you know, giving out money for, for, for obviously good reasons, but I need to, I need to have confidence that the money or the resources that are found in the particular schools mm-hmm. are, are generating, you know, the, the returns that are needed in terms of, of, of quality of education. So, so, so that, that lies in a challenge from, from me uh, and, and any other donor organization or partner in education space because ultimately we need to say um you know these services of these uh, platforms that uh have been provided from 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 analytics point of view Paul from analytics point of view do i have the confidence that indeed uh you know so many people are using these things to a point that uh unat has spoken about in terms of 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 equalizing because uh, you know Education has the potential to equalize, but from a, from a business point of view, if there's no surety or assurance or confidence that you're not just only just, you know, providing, it becomes problematic. That is why I really appreciate the analytic side of things, Paolo. Yes. So I hear you and I agree with you. You know, a company wants to know that they've donated a computer lab to a school and they're getting results. The challenge is always that those results come in a year, in two years, and you see that school go from a 30% pass rate to a 50% pass rate to an 80% pass rate, and sometimes that's too long for some companies. Obviously, if you have analytics today, and some of some of our customers that we've deployed at want to see the stats every week, the usage stats, and when the usage stats go down, they call their people and say, why aren't the learners using the content? And sometimes it's uh, they have we have a center in Dipsworth, for example. Um, they have internet challenges or they have electricity challenges because we don't need an offline an online system. We've got an offline system there. They have electricity challenges. Okay, so that that's a good reason. Um, in some centers, it's in some schools, it's really that uh, the teachers have kind of tried it. The learners want to use it, but the teachers are stuck in the old way and they don't want change management. And it's exactly what 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 Justice and Unatu are saying. They're afraid of change. Now. To get this right, you have to do change very, very slowly. You can't go from one side of the spectrum to the other overnight. And to be honest, if you look at e-learning content providers, a lot of people create content and they say, this is the way to teach maths. You know what? If you're a teacher who's been teaching maths for 20 or 30 years and you feel that the way you teach maths is pretty good and your results are reasonable, and all of a sudden some e-learning gadget comes along and says to you, no, 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 you don't teach maths like that, you teach maths like this. It becomes a bit of a challenge for that 
educated to embrace change management. So it has to be done very gradually. And gradually means give them resources to improve their lessons and help them and save them time, which is what we, we try and achieve here. And slowly, slowly they'll embrace the technology. They'll see that, you know what, instead of me sitting and talking for 45 minutes, I've got a 10-minute video that explains that concept exceptionally well. So to break my lesson up and make it a lot more fun, let me just play that 10-minute video, and my learners will get it. Then we can have a discussion, and I'll see who's got it and who hasn't got it, and I can jump in and help and just explain it again if necessary. So that is the kind of change management that that I certainly endorse. Um, On the analytics side, it's also important that once you start using the technologies and you want to get quick wins, the quick wins is looking at the assessments, okay? So every month or every week or every quarter, you're doing assessments. So if you take a learner from a 30 percentile in maths, and now you, from the analytics, you can determine that learner has spent a lot of time accessing that content, reviewing it, uh, revising it, catching up on stuff that they might have missed because they were sick or they weren't at school or they had some unforeseen circumstance, then you can say, hey, old uh, Unati is now gone from 30% to 50%, and, you know, there's the time he's spending on the system. It doesn't mean that it's only because Unati is now using e-learning. It's a combination of what the teacher is doing, putting in the effort, and it's a combination of what Unati is doing, putting in the effort himself. What it does do is now gives Unati the power to change his life. Because if you happen to be one of the unfortunates that has a teacher who doesn't care, and there are some out there, I'm not going to say there aren't, uh, or a teacher is overloaded, overworked, 50, 50 learners in the classroom has to get through a curriculum, at least Unati, as an individual, can now spend the time because he's got resources. You know, when we were young, uh, Nimrod, if we were fortunate, we had access to a library, uh, a book library. So if you didn't understand something, you went to the local library, took out a book, and, you know, it was free or you paid for it, and you went home and studied it. Now everything's gone electronic. You've got an electronic library, which makes it a lot easier to get access to that help that you need. I couldn't agree with more. If you've just joined us, um, I'm, I'm, I'm having a very interesting conversation with Paulo Caldera, Justice Ndaba, and Unatim Tonensi. I do welcome your your thoughts uh, via our SMS line, which is 34519. The telegram is 0618951095. And, of course, I will take your emails. Uh, my email is nimrod at high2co.za. Uh, Paulo, you just mentioned something that was very quite critical. For me, it's, it's the... The, the assessment capabilities of some of these uh, online or e-learning platforms. But if it is as clear to me, why is it that government is not being, you know, uh, receptive or rolling out these kinds of technologies? Because it's not rocket science that the impact is likely to be uh, exponential. Absolutely. And for a long time I've been saying that... I don't have all the answers. Um, you don't have all the answers. The e-learning company next door doesn't have all the answers. I'm saying between us, we have a value proposition. And really, uh, for two years now, uh, whoever I can get to listen to me, I've been saying, guys, get us around the table. Let us debate how we can solve the problems. The professionals in conjunction with, with Department of Basic Education professionals and Provincial Department professionals, look at the value propositions and create a roadmap into the future. Because 
If anybody says to you, I've got the answer and my e-learning system is the best, you know what, they're talking nonsense. It might be the best for a particular school, a particular headmaster or group of teachers that loves a particular program. It's not the best for everybody. And I'm saying we've all got some value to add. And really, um, if we take all our intellectual property and our combined brain power and our combined experience and everyone adds a little bit to that pot, you'll get the perfect stew, you know. This is a case of too many, not, it's not a case of too many cooks, uh, will, will spoil the broth. It's a case of governments got their experts, but don't just stick to one or two solutions and say, we're rolling out this, we're rolling out that. I mean, I'll give you a classic example. Um, a lot of schools, a lot of, uh, uh mobile, uh, services providers have provided computer labs to schools at great cost. Typically those labs have 40 computers, Probably at a cost of five or six or seven thousand rand each. You know, if they had to spend a little bit more, and I'm not saying a lot, I'm saying if you're spending two or three hundred thousand rand on a school, you look at these e-learning systems. Probably for fifty thousand rand, you could put an e-learning system into a school. All of a sudden, those forty computers become useful because I am actually tired of going around the country to poor rural areas and looking at these very nice computer labs, very shiny computers, and they do nothing. They've got Microsoft products on there, Windows, Word, Excel, but no Internet connectivity. And I'm not disrespecting Microsoft products, but there's only so much time you can keep a learner engaged playing with Windows, Word, and Excel and PowerPoint. You know, Sooner or later, either you give that computer connectivity so the, the kids can surf the net and find things for themselves, or you create a walled garden surfing platform whereby the kids can get access to things that will teach them, okay? Providing Internet access to every school in this country is going to take a lot of time. It's a challenge. They're trying. It ain't going to happen anytime soon. So fundamentally, you have to, what I call, decloudify the cloud. Cloud's wonderful until you don't have it. So try and, at every school in this country, put down a cheap content server that has content. And I'm not even saying our content. I'm saying everybody's content. Department of Basic Education, Gauteng Education have created a lot of content at huge expense. Make this available to every school that's prepared to invest in a server and a e-learning system. You know, not at huge cost. We aren't talking hundreds of thousands of rands per school. We're talking probably 50 or 60,000 per school. Okay? All of a sudden, those kids via those school computers, which today are very bright and shiny but do nothing, have access to learning content, if they happen to have a smartphone or a smart tablet over a wireless network without using their data, they have access to learning content. They can help themselves. Well, Paula, thank you very much. I tell you what, I've, I've got to, I'm going to put you on a spot here, Paula, as we, as we close in this conversation. Um, you know, because some of the issues that you're raising are of national importance. And uh, let me see the high listeners uh, could potentially, you know, join you in having a conversation on how best we can address the national educational crisis via, you know, e-learning platforms that you that you mentioned off. And, and I'm glad that you are quite receptive that there are other uh, uh, providers that are out there. If all the providers could sit under the roof, uh, you could op- possibly make a difference by way of changing at least. Uh, you know, policy position of government 
so that government understands and appreciates where you're coming from and perhaps maybe, you know, buy into some of the products that you, the market is providing. Would you be keen to come and, and have a conversation with us on those issues? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm always keen to, to, to engage because, uh, I have an opinion. Doesn't mean I'm always right. It means I have an opinion and some of the points I've made must have some validity or, or would have been shot down a long time ago. And I'd love to hear other people's opinions. And if they differ with mine, that's fantastic. But, you know, together we actually have a better product than trying to figure it out alone. So, so fundamentally, an engagement like that is always welcome. Thank you very much. Well, I think we're going to have to, you know, park this issue unless uh, Justice Ndaba and Nati have a different view. No, no, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. I like it when things move that, that, that beautifully. Um, you know, we're now just going to quickly go into our second phase of our conversation. Uh, as I've pointed out that, you know, the, 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 the second bit of our conversation is really about how do we constructively find solutions beyond, beyond the COVID-19. Uh, we know that, you know, the president is going to be making an announcement tonight and hopefully the, you know, uh, part of the, Package is going to be, you know, trying to loosen up the leech. But from where you're sitting and based on your understanding of how the country is faring to date, what are, what are your thoughts in relation to what is likely to come out tonight? That's for anybody. Justice. So you, you want to venture an opinion, Justice? I beg your pardon? Okay. I think I missed you a bit, a little bit there, but uh, Unati, can you take a little so I follow the, I think I missed it. Okay. Look, I mean, I, 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 it, it depends on, 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 on how do we see this? Do we see it as an opportunity or do we see it as a crisis? I suggest that we see it as an opportunity. Some of the things and some of the tough decisions that we needed to take as a, as a country, which ordinarily would have not easily had a backing, Pre, um, um, the crisis that is happening could easily have a backing so that we use this as an opportunity to set the country on a completely different trajectory, um, on, on a whole lot of issues that have led to a downgrade, um, have, have, and many people that we've not been able to allow to participate in the economy meaningfully. I mean, the issues around decisive action on SOEs, maybe this is an opportunity because some of them are not operating at the moment because some of them are really not essential services. So I, 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 I from a, from a, from a panoramic view or from, from an approach perspective, that's what I, I would want the president to think about as a, as a, as a way of changing the very basic fundamentals on which as a country we sit upon. Because this, to me, is an opportunity to do that. People are less concerned about the luxury issues. People are are really concerned about day-to-day basic values of living. And and I think that is an opportunity for any government to to, to set a different path on values and and set a different path on, on principles on which will help us going forward um, as, a, as, a, as a country. I mean, I, I, we just spoke about education. There's a, an opportunity there too. 
even in the economy, there's an opportunity. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine, I, I, I'm just trying to imagine on the day that the JSE opens, what's going to happen. Um, I, I, I was listening to or reading in a newspaper that um, the oil price has gone almost to zero. So what are these things saying to us as a country as an opportunity? I mean, I, as a simple consumer of, of energy, I mean, if I'm paying 16 rands a litre and, and today the fuel, the, the oil is $5 a barrel, um, I mean, what, what, what opportunity does that give us as a country? So for me, I, I, I want to look at it completely different. I know people are looking for, for the president to say what are the immediate mitigating measures, what can be done? I know it's it's true, and I mean I agree. Some companies are not going to make it, and 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 that's the reality of the matter. But be that as it may, what are the opportunities that would set this country on a completely different trajectory of recovery, not only economically, but socially and 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 otherwise? Because the other challenges that we have are social problems, um, that we have problems of division, problems of a significant component of the of the nation being wounded from the past and we're struggling with that and 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 it has led to some of the problems that we have i mean a, a clear sign is the, the 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 role that alcohol plays in the destruction and being destructive in this country i was listening to Mwilson being the other day saying that as South Africans we are forced to pay twice for almost everything we pay as taxpayers for the police to protect us but at the same time, we must go and pay for a security company to do rounds around our, our, our estate so that we are safe. So we pay twice for the same thing. So it's an opportunity to, in my view, to rethink about some of these things. And I think most of us, or, or as South Africans, and certainly we're not just South Africans, as Africans and, and the rest of the world, we must just accept that the world has changed. It will not go back to what it was um, pre this, 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 this COVID-19. So for me, I, I, that, that's, that's just my approach as, as a president. I, I, I would suggest that he really focuses on the key fundamental things that we can change and set ourselves on a completely different trajectory. Thank you. Tokyo, yes, uh, thank you very much, Unati, for that, um, you know, input. Justice, your view, what would you do? What, what are your expectations? How would you do it differently? Yeah, look, um, the, uh, I agree by and large with what Unati has said, but the, um, let's just accept that what the president is coming to talk about, um, would address mainly, uh, short-term, uh, pressures, uh, for instance, experienced by, uh, business and, and the community at large, society and business. So that would take care of some of the short-term pressures. But I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that we are not going to be the same after this. So when we open or even way after this, everything about us must change. And on the economic front, we have to accept that uh, post-COVID, um, we, we have to really look much into producing things ourselves. Uh, in other words, resuscitating more of the production side than the consumption side, meaning that there's a lot of things now that we've seen during this COVID that a lot other than a few things that are being imported, 
imported from China, like the masks and so on. I mean, we see a, um, a lot of small businesses coming up with ventilators with uh, themselves. Uh, so, so I would say that, uh, uh, and then you, there's a big drive by a lot of communities now to plant in their gardens, um, organic food and, and so on and so forth. So, um, so on the, on the health side, uh, looking into more organic foods, uh, planting our own small little gardens, um, and then going and, and, and using land more productively. And on the economic side, looking at opening up uh, new industries that are going to produce uh, internally, whether it's about the PPEs that are being required, we produce them here, whether the, um, the other things that we consume, if we can resuscitate, because I, I saw a stat that said, uh, in fact, Stats SA has now said um, a third of South African companies that were surveyed between the 30th of March and yesterday are saying they're going, they are not going to reopen after COVID. In fact, this morning, Sun International has uh, published uh, a, a notice that they're not going to to reopen. Um, uh, what is that? The the uh, the, 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 the 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 hotels in the northern Pretoria, the Rangharangu, and then so they've already decided whether there's a lift or there's not. They are closing shop. So basically, I'm saying that we're going to have to rethink and introspect quite thoroughly and change the way in which we have been doing business. Business is going to be to be looking completely different, and there are other things that we can do. There is not doom and gloom. What is it that we're going to get out of this situation? And then businesses need to reevaluate and go into new spaces. Thank you very much, uh, Justice, for that. Maybe the last point just before we close uh, you know, one thing that I've also picked up is that most companies uh, are going to, you know, employ force, uh, you know, uh, uh, force majeure notices, um, uh, you know, trying to move away from original agreement. This will be quite devastating. Yes, we understand that, um, you know, COVID-19 has had unintended consequences, but I also think there will be a lot of unscrupulous yeah. business practices um, in, yeah. resulting in yeah. force majeure. Your point? Well, I think um, well, what I've, I've, I've heard, and, and, and in fact, um, a lot of the agreement, even though they would have a force majeure, but they, 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 I, would, I would encourage companies to rather renegotiate the terms because all agreements provide for reassessment of terms because force majeure would mean pulling out because a lot of employees and, and, and a lot of uh, those involved with those businesses are receptive to uh, the realization that things have changed. Therefore, meaning that all agreements by and large can be renegotiated and most agreements provide for that. So I don't see a need to then um, engage a force majeure clause at this stage for many of the businesses because let's not forget that many of the businesses really, really only have lost maybe a month or two of trade. So um, unless you are in a critical space where a month or two of trade has, has depleted your resources to the extent that you have to engage. So many of the force majeures, I think, are 
are either scrupulous or they are not well thought through. Because I mean, uh, we have we have closed since the 26th of March. It is the 26th in in two days time, in three days time. So it's only a month, and then uh, business is going to be affected for a, a further month or two. So it, it it has really just disturbed three months of business or two months of business. So uh, first, major anticipate that we, you know trade has been closed off completely. Therefore, we have to pull out. So I mean. Companies haven't traded for a month. I don't think the resources would be depleted to that extent. Well, well, the assumption that you're making, Justice, is that um, you know the governance ethos in most companies is at its the highest. But we do know that uh, corporate governance, um, you know, <laughs> in the country, that's um, why it's you, know, <laughs> you know, so that's that's outside. Paulo, you're parting short as we're closing this this you conversation. Know, well, Nimrod, that's exactly your area of expertise, which is corporate governance. I think it's got to start with government. You know, we've had the Moody's downgrade. Um, we, we're hitting a low. We, we're A lot of South Africans are at a low point right now from a business perspective, being locked up for 26 days, et cetera, et cetera, for the right reasons. But certainly corporate governance, it's a time now for government to stand up, and corporate governance has to kick in. So we don't have money. Um, SOEs are bleeding money. They, they, they're talking about shutting down SAA. But certainly, I think if government really steps up to the party and just goes with pure corporate governance, they can fix it. There'll be enough money for everybody. Thank you very much, folks. It has been an absolute pleasure having you. Uh, I mean, that was Paula Caldera, who is the MD of, uh, you know, uh, Edgeboard South Africa, uh, Mr. Justice Ndaba, who's an executive at Knowledge Anchors, and, uh, lastly, Mr. Natim Tunensi, who's a, who's a, an ethic, um, ethics consultant. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. It has been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank, thank you, you so sir. much. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you very much. There we are. Uh, it has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, today, technology decided to be on our side. Uh, thank you very much, DJ's Flow, for coordinating the telecon. And until we meet again, stay safe and be good. Adios.